The following message was recorded at Fountain of Life Fellowship in Fountain Valley, California. For more information, please go to www.folfcrc.com. Let's pray. Father, we come to you uh, this morning just with open hearts, open mindset before you, Lord. Maybe some of us had a hard week. Father, we're all bugged by, hurt by what happened in San Bernardino this week. Um, We ask you for your justice, Lord, for your wisdom, for peace. We need you, God. We need you globally. We need you, uh, we need you individually. Lord, we need you in our relationships. We come to you right now because... um, We can't do this on our own, Lord. Forgive us of our sins. Forgive us of maybe things we said, things we regret. Um, Thank you for Jesus, that he did everything necessary to make us right with you, and we don't have to to climb a mountain or to earn anything, but we can just look to him, and he's enough um, to grant us complete forgiveness. Lord, thank you for this community and the family we have here. Thank you so much for the Bogards, Lord. We love them. We're so excited about what you're doing through them. We do pray for that community where they're invested, Lord. We pray that your light would shine, your spirit would work powerfully. You'd show them the grace um, that is available in the Lord Jesus and what he's done. Father, help us now. Uh, Help us as we come before your word. We pray, God, that we would be encouraged that we would be strengthened, even challenged where needed. But Lord, let us hear something bigger than just any speech I could put together. We pray that you would speak personally to us as we uh, look at your word together. We ask this in Jesus' name, amen. All right, so we got, uh, we got the lights up, we got Christmas trees, and it's that time of year again, right? And so I thought, Maybe we should remember three things together. What we're celebrating, remember that together. Not only that, I want to think about how we know what we're celebrating. And then third, what's one really important effect that should have on our lives? So what we're celebrating, how do we know one important effect that, should ha- that, that that should have in our lives? So just to be clear, I'm not, I'm not talking about what the culture is celebrating or not. I'm not here to talk to you about, you know, what's on a Starbucks cup or not, right? Did anybody, okay, I I, I don't care. I'm talking about Christians. What are we celebrating? Those who claim Christ. Um, Obviously, we're not just celebrating the holiday spirit. I mean, don't you love Christmas lights in the dark? It's great, I love it. The music I can take for a couple weeks, enjoy it for a couple weeks. Um, I enjoy the holiday spirit, but that's really not what we're celebrating, right? Jesus didn't have Jingle Bells playing uh, in the manger. It's not what we're celebrating. Uh, We're not just celebrating presents, although, heck, it's fun to give presents. It's fun to give presents, but that's not at the heart of it. Can we remember together? I mean, these are gonna be familiar things to you, but can we remember some of what we're celebrating, what Christians are celebrating at Christmas? Now, you probably remember that to find the events of Jesus' birth, we, we look to the Gospel of Luke, especially those first few chapters. Those have the account of what happened. You remember Luke was a co-worker of the Apostle Paul. He wrote two books we have in the New Testament, the Gospel of Luke, which is about the life of Jesus, 
And he also wrote the book of Acts, which is what we read from this morning about the history of the early church. So let's look together just, just real briefly at two of these awesome events of Christmas from Luke chapter 1. So let's put Luke 1, 30 to 33 on the board. Let me read that for you. And the angel said to her, do not be afraid, Mary, for you found favor with God, and behold, you'll conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called Son of the Most High, and the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. What are we celebrating? Who are we celebrating? Uh, a supernatural son. But do you see a little more than just like a cute baby in this passage? What do you see about it? I mean, this is God in the flesh. Um, this is a king who's going to reign. Do you see it? Forever. He's a king. We're celebrating a king who's going to reign forever. This is all our hopes for justice one day. All our hopes for human thriving, for reconciliation with God, for joy. This is all our hopes right here. This person, this king, this promised divine king, that's what we're celebrating. How do we know? Just from this passage, how do, how do we know? How, how, did, how did Mary know? Well, you've got a persuasive angel, don't you? <laughs> You're going to have a baby, not the normal way. <laughs> and it's going to be the divine king. Now, how did, did she come up with that on her own? No, she, she had all the, the text of the Old Testament behind it, and then the message of an angel, a soldier of God, a persuasive angel. And what was the result? Mary worshiped. I invite you to read that passage later. Uh, what Mary says, it's amazing what she says in her worship to God. But you see these three things, don't you? What are we celebrating? The person of Jesus, the king, the king, we need him, the king. How do we know? Well, in this case, a persuasive angel, but there was a messenger, wasn't there? And third, what's the result? It was worship, and worship in like an exclamation. Mary shouted it out. Let's look at one more example. This is from Luke chapter 2. I'll read it for you. And in the same region, there were shepherds out in the field. You guys even know the next phrase, like with your eyes, eyes closed. Keeping watch over their flock by night. We've heard this so many times. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with what? Fear. Terrified. Terrified. They were chilling on a hill in the evening, and now the sky is lit up with angels. And the angel said to them, fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy. It will be for all the people, for unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who's Christ the Lord. What are we celebrating? Got good news for you, the angel's saying. He's here. God's keeping all his promises. And it's for all the people. You know, the, the, the reason, it's notable that the angels came to shepherds, as in not like the priests, not the kings, not the elite, not the rich. Uh, back then, the shepherd job was kind of a, a loser job. And, and so when the angels... When the angels go talk to somebody, they pick the, the nobodies, the people who aren't um, famous or important. 
And they, and they go to the shepherds and they say, good news and it's for you and it's for all the people. So God is coming and he's sending his king and, he, and, and the people that nobody else cares about, those are the people he cares about, the people he wants in his kingdom. So it's good news. It's for you. Jesus came for you to bring you into his kingdom. How do we know? Again, you have some persuasive angels. They're terrifying, they're scary, but they have a message. And they don't just have a message, they have an address and an outfit. Unto you is born this day in the city of David. Well, everybody knows where that is. Where is it? Bethlehem. And you'll find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths, you know, grab all your, your washcloths, we don't have anything else, and wrap him up in them. And lying in a, a manger, which is where animals eat. So humble. Aren't you shocked? What are we celebrating? The promised king who's king forever, all our hopes and dreams, is gonna come as a baby and he's gonna lie in a manger and he's, he's coming for the weak, he's coming for the poor. How do we know? The angels told us. What was the outcome? What did the shepherds do? Heck with these sheep. You know, or maybe one guy had to stay. <laughs> Sad shepherd. And they went to see him. And they celebrated him. They told, how, how does Mary know this story, by the way? She wasn't sitting on the hill. The shepherds told her. Right? She treasured these things up in her heart. Luke says. But what did the shepherds do after this? They went and told everybody. So they heard the news and they worshiped. And that worship exploded into a proclamation, just like Mary, really. What are we celebrating? Jesus and who he is. How do we know? Oh, at this point, persuasive angels. And it ends up in worship, joy, which explodes out in something, sharing the news. One more. You know, you can't, you don't just, when you read Luke, you're we're listening to angels, right? We listen to angels. And we, you could listen to Mary and what she said. You could listen to the shepherds. But who else are you listening to? Because you're reading a book. Who wrote this? Don't be too spiritual yet. Of course, you're right. If some of you are like, God, yes, that's true. It's inspired by God. You're right. But who wrote it? It's the gospel of Luke. What's he doing? What does he want? Look with me at Luke chapter 1. Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us. So you hear what he's saying? A bunch of people have tried to put this story together. Verse 2. Just as those who from the beginning were what? This is really important. Eyewitnesses and ministers of the word had delivered them to us. Here's what I'm doing. Verse 3, Luke is saying. It seemed good to me also having followed all these things closely for some past time to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, that you may have what? Certainty concerning the things you've been taught. What are we celebrating in this passage? What's Luke celebrating? Well, here he's celebrating historical reality. He is a historian. He has gathered evidence from the witnesses. He's celebrating historical reality. How do we know? He is writing this epic gospel of the life of Jesus, 24 chapters, right? 
to, and he just told you what he, what he wants, he's persuading his friend Theophilus of what? What does he want Theophilus to know? You can have certainty. This is not a myth or a fable. This is, this is evidence gathered from crowds of eyewitnesses. This is legit. And what's the effect? Do you think he wants just Theophilus to get his Jesus history right? So he can answer all the questions in Sunday school? What's the effect Luke wants from Theophilus? Worship. Worship. Give your life to Jesus. Follow him. Trust him. Love him. Praise him. Obey him. Do you see a theme here at Christmas? What are we celebrating? The historical reality of the person of Jesus. How do we know? Messengers. And really, you've got a host of them. If you, God's message through his prophets for hundreds of years. We read one this morning. Angels. Luke. Mary. The shepherds. Jesus himself. Jesus' disciples. A message. A persuasion with the effect that we could live a life of worship and continue that message. So what should the events of Christmas do in us? Are you following along? What are we celebrating? Jesus. And, and the, the, the New Testament wants you to have certainty on this. Certainty. So you can, so you can found your whole life on this. This is real. With the result that you would worship and where does worship take us? You know, what did Mary do when she worshiped? She proclaimed it. What did the shepherds do as they worshiped? They proclaimed it. What did the angels do in their worship? They proclaimed it. What is Luke doing in his worship? He proclaimed it. Is there anyone who worships who doesn't persuade? I've got an, I've got an itch. This is what I want to talk about this Christmas. And... Uh, this might be disappointing. I don't know. Is it Christmassy? This is what I think. I think Christmas deserves persuasion. Persuasion. Look at this verse, 2 Corinthians 5.11. Knowing the fear of the Lord, what? We persuade others. What is the fear of the Lord? Uh, it's, not the ter- it's not a terror that runs from God, right? That, that's not what we're talking about at all. It's an awe that pursues God. You're just amazed by him. You respect him so much. You love him. In the same passage, 2 Corinthians 5, Paul says, in everything we want to please him. That's a great way to, to think of the fear of the Lord. He, he's the opinion that matters most to you. And, and so you want to please him with how you live. He, he's loved you. You love him. Um, and so you, you want to please him. You, you, if there's a fear, you're scared of rebelling against him. You're scared of leaving him. You don't want to do that. You want to stay close. Uh, and then when you fear the Lord, you have this desire for others to know and love him. Because Paul says, knowing the fear of the Lord, what do we do? We persuade others. When you, when you fear the Lord, what do we do? We persuade others. The angels, the shepherds, Luke persuasive, persuasive. What does it mean to persuade? Do you, ever, do, you, do you ever think of yourself as a persuader? 
Like, uh, how is persuading different than telling? Telling seems to be like one level of just giving some information, right? Persuading is an effort to convince someone to believe something using sound arguments. Do you agree? Persuading is to convince somebody to believe something using sound arguments. It's different than just telling. It's engaging. It's an effort to win the heart and the mind. It's an effort to win worship. Knowing the fear of the Lord, we, what do we do? We persuade others. When, when, you, when you remember what you're celebrating and it leads you to worship, you become persuaded of the truth of Jesus and what do you want to do? You want to persuade. Why do we need to think about persuasion? There's a lot of reasons. Again, a persuade, persuasion engages with somebody. You want to win the heart and the mind using sound arguments. Why do we need to think about persuasion? There's lots of reasons. I'm just going to give you one this morning, and it's this. Most people in the world we live in are not asking the questions we have the answers for. Did you hear that? They're not asking the questions we have the answers for. Here's what I mean. This is not on the overhead, but you remember in in Acts chapter 16, uh, there's an encounter with the Philippian jailer, okay? Um, And he comes to Paul after this epic event that happens, and he comes to them and he says, sirs, what must I do to be saved? And they said, believe in the Lord Jesus. Cha-ching, right? How many of you, like, you're just waiting for that softball, right? You're a Christian, your friend's like, I'm convicted of my sin, what must I do to be saved? And you're like, I got this one, bam. Believe on the Lord Jesus. And they're like, come on, okay? Do you have events like that a lot in your life? (laughs) Are, Are a lot of your friends and family members just coming up to you and going, I've got to be saved, how do I do it? And you're like, I know this one. Believe in Jesus. Gosh, if only, if only. Now sometimes it all culminates to where you have an experience like that with somebody. It's it's a lot, it's beautiful. You're just like, oh, okay. Sweet. But I don't know about you. Uh, a lot of my friends who don't know the Lord are not coming to me with that question. They don't have that question in their mind. They don't think they need to be saved. They don't have in their minds the idea of a holy God who made everything. They don't, have, they don't have in their minds the concept of his standard, of his law. They don't have in their minds the, the sense that they've rebelled against his law and they are, there's trouble because God is holy. They haven't heard or really understood the, the truth of the gospel, that they don't have to save themselves if they can't, that Jesus is enough. They don't know. They're they're not living in that story in their minds, in the true story. They're living in a totally different way of looking at the world. So what do we do? Do we just wait for somebody to walk up to us and say, what do I do to get saved? By the way, that's not what was happening in Paul's life in this event. He wasn't just walking down the street and somebody said, hey, I heard you're an apostle. What do I do to get saved? He'd been working very hard. Let me show you what Paul was up to all the time. Look at Acts 16. I'm oh, sorry, wrong one. Look at Acts 18, verse 4. 
You see it? And he what? Reasoned in the synagogue every Sabbath and tried to persuade Jews and Greeks. Think of these three words. Same Luke who wrote the Gospel of Luke is writing Acts. Three words. And he what? Reasoned. What does that mean? I've got evidences, truths, propositions, and I want you to hear these truths, this evidence. He reasoned. Not only that, he reasoned in the synagogue. What's the next word? Every. What does every communicate to you? One time Paul reasoned. No, Pastor Matt, that's not what every means. He's doing this all the time, constantly. It's constantly reasoning. Reasoning. And who's he talking to, Jews or Greeks? Everyone. And his goal, he tried to do what? He tried to persuade. He tried to persuade to convince someone to believe something using sound arguments, not just telling it's an effort to win the heart and the mind. So we live in a culture, good or bad, that's moving away from some of its Christianish roots. Now, I don't, don't hear me wrong. I don't mean to claim that America was ever identical with, like, a Christian nation. That's not what I'm saying. But there has been Christian principles in our culture, big time. That's obvious, I think. And our culture's moving away from it. And so, if you're sitting here with me, by the way, if you're, if you're not of this persuasion yet, we're so glad you're here. We're glad you're here. Listen in. But if, if you're sitting here with me and you're, and, and you're like, I'm a Christian and I want other people to know Jesus, aren't we gonna have to up the ante a little more than being willing to tell somebody the answer when someone says, what must I do to be saved? I mean, I honestly believe almost all of you whom I know, you could handle that well. You could tell them how to be saved. But nobody's asking that question. And they weren't asking Paul that question either. Nobody even knew of Christianity. And so what did he have to do? He had to persuade. He had to get in a, a relational engagement where there's a flow of ideas so that he had an opportunity or a context for presenting the truth of Jesus in all its beauty to them in order to win them. And he wasn't ashamed about it at all. Knowing the fear of the Lord, what do we do? We persuade others. You fear the Lord, you love Jesus? The events of Christmas deserve persuasion. They deserve persuasion. So this morning, very briefly, I want to give you kind of an ABCs of persuasion because that's what the events of Christmas deserve. You see the truth of Jesus that we're celebrating. You hear how we, we were persuaded by angels, by shepherds, by, by Mary, by Luke, and we worship. We love Jesus, and now we want, to, we want to persuade others. So how do you do this, right? It's different than just telling. And I think we have an amazing little case study of persuasion in Acts 26. This is Paul persuading and so in these few verses, I think you've got the ABCs, like basics of what it means to try to persuade as a Christian, four basic themes for what Christian persuasion can look like. And it really is amazing because Paul's on trial. I mean, you and I, maybe you'll get to sit at a Starbucks for this or have someone over for dinner. Paul's on trial. 
He has chains around his wrists. <laughs> How bold would you be in that moment? Wouldn't you be at least tempted to be timid, to be scared, to be shy, to, to try to just escape somehow? And in Paul, instead, Paul sees it, I mean, if you can persuade here, you can persuade anywhere. He sees it as a stage, as an opportunity to persuade. And I want to show you the ABCs of persuasion. First, A stands for what? Ask questions. It's not in these exact verses that we read. I think there's one in there. But verse 8, Paul says to everyone listening, 8 of Acts 26, why is it thought incredible by any of you that God raises the dead? Now, who's on trial? Don't you love this? Who's on trial? So backwards. Wait, Paul's on trial. They're supposed to be asking him questions. And he, he tells them why he's there. Jesus rose from the dead. That's why you should trust in him. He rose from the dead. He's king. And they're like, oh, no, come on. Rose from the dead? Verse 8, why is it thought incredible by any of you that God raises the dead? What is Paul doing with that question? What do questions do? He said, you should trust Jesus because he rose. And they said, eh, resurrection's impossible. And so then he's saying, well, you believe in God, don't you? Because they do. They're not atheists. Yeah, we do. Well, couldn't God raise the dead? Uh, which one's the harder miracle, making everything out of nothing or raising someone from the dead? Oh, I can't believe Jesus rose from the dead. I realize it's an incredible miracle, but that just points to his uniqueness. Is it impossible? Most people, at least in America, still believe that there's a God who made everything. Now, the details get fuzzy after that. There's a God who made everything. If you can make everything from nothing, can you raise someone from the dead? Easy. What's he doing with this question? Paul asked the questions to challenge the presuppositions of his audience and help them rethink so that they'll seek truth. That's what questions do. It helps people challenge their presuppositions and go, oh, maybe, maybe that was off, and rethink so that they'll seek truth. If you start looking for this in Scripture, you'll see God does this all the time. Read the prophets full of questions, challenging questions. In fact, what was the first thing Paul heard Jesus say? You remember the story that he has, he's on the way to, remember it was before he's a Christian, he's on the way to Damascus to persecute Christians, put him in jail. He has this vision and the first thing Jesus says to him is, you're being a bad guy, so you should stop. No, that's not what he says at all. The first thing Jesus says to Paul is, Saul, why are you persecuting me? What is that? That's a question. What is that question supposed to do? Make Paul rethink all his suppositions, all his assumptions, so that he'll be kind of thrown into disarray and seek truth. Why are you persecuting me? Paul knows he's talking to somebody big at that point. I'm persecuting you? I thought I was just after these dirty Christians. But now I'm pers Oh, there must be something more going on. And, and then that, why? Why are you persecuting me? Paul, what is it that you believe that makes you think this is good? 
Why are you walking down this road? What's going on? Do you see? God is using this question in Paul to shake him up so he'll rethink. Oh, it's all through the Bible. What's the first thing God says to Adam after the fall? So uh, where are you? Do you think God was like, I can't find him? No. That one's for Adam. So Adam thinks, I'm hiding behind a bush from God. What am I doing here? Questions help you think. This is what persuaders do, right? We want to ask questions. Questions. Look, listening to people is love. It's genuine, sincere, it's honest love. Ask people questions about what they believe and then ask them why they believe what they believe. And, and get to know them. Look, you'll learn things too. You know, did you know a lot of people, and I'm not just talking about people who aren't Christians, a lot of people I don't think ever question why they believe what they believe. Last week I talked about that, you know, that idea of people say, everything, good, everything happens for a reason. Why do you believe that? Uh, do you realize what you're assuming, that everything would happen for a reason? There's some, someone or something out there smart enough and powerful enough to take into account every stinking thing that's happening and put it together towards a good purpose? I can't even clean my office. <laughs> How can somebody do that? Well, everything happens for a reason. You're crazy. Especially if you don't believe in an all-powerful, all-knowing God. And if you believe in him, Yeah, everything does happen for a reason. But there's a reason to believe everything happens for a reason. Do you see what's happening there? Ask questions. Your friend says everything happens for a reason. Why do you believe that? That's, that's impossible. Shake, it helps help us challenge our assumptions so that we'll seek truth. That's the A of persuasion that we see from Paul. B, look at Acts 26, verse 24. B is be bold about the truth of Christianity. Acts chapter 26, verse 24. As he was saying these things in his defense, Festus said with a loud voice, this, uh, this makes me laugh, Paul, you're out of your mind. Your great learning is driving you out of your mind. So, so there's a huge crowd here. It's a courtroom setting. Festus is the governor. Paul's telling him about Jesus and, and, and what Jesus has done. And Festus stands up and says, you're nuts. You're crazy. Uh, have you ever tried to talk about Jesus and somebody said, that's just ridiculous? Didn't you feel like sucking your thumb and going into the fetal position and whimpering? <laughs> Did you feel intimidated? Nobody believes that. Oh. I love how Paul responds. He doesn't whimper, but he doesn't get mean either. Look at verse 25, Acts chapter 26. You'll have to get in your Bibles for this one. Page 935. Verse 25. But Paul said, I'm not out of my mind, most excellent Festus. First thing to see, most excellent Festus. What is he, what is he doing there with that? He's, he's being polite. He's honoring the authority that Festus has. Paul's not angry. He's not cursing. He's not 
deeply offended. He's not doing any of that. No, but then Paul says this, I am speaking true and rational words. Look what the apostle believes about the reality of Christianity. I am speaking what? True and rational words. Have you ever had the thought that faith is just meant to be like, um, you know, faith is an important, it's Americana, you know, during Christmas. Um, Just believe, you know. Put the blindfold on, jump off the cliff, just believe. As in, as if faith was like just a, a dreamy, romanticized kind of, I hope it's true. I hope you don't think that's what Christians mean by faith. Paul says, I'm speaking true and rational words. And then he says, <laughs> he's actually kind of bold here, verse 26. The king knows about these things, and I speak to him boldly. He, he says it. For I'm persuaded none of these things has escaped his notice. This has not been done in a corner. What's he talking about? Hey, King, you know about Jesus of Nazareth and what he did all through, all through the townships. You know the stir this caused. You know what happened with Pilate. You know there's a, you know there's a, a new movement growing like weeds and, and nobody knows what to do with it. I'm speaking to you, but this is, this is real. This is written in the pages of history. Does Paul seem insecure about what he believes? And what did Luke say? Hey, Theophilus, I'm writing you this, so you just close your eyes and have faith. Just believe. No. I'm writing you this so you can have certainty. This is from eyewitness testimony. This is real. This is true. We can be bold about the truth we know as persuaders. We can be bold about the truth. And it never means angry. It never means domineering but it means confident. And maybe if you're sitting here today and you're like, I'm not sure, I've, I've got lots of doubts about the truth of Christianity. Look, that is fine, that is okay. I think anybody who's tried to think these things through has had doubts at some point. I still have some things that are very difficult for me, some doubts, but you know, for me personally, one reason I'm a Christian is because in my opinion, all the other options are so horrid. I certainly know what I'm not out there as far as what to believe. Christianity holds it all together in the best possible way. And we can be bold about that. So maybe you're sitting here and saying, well, before I try to persuade, I'm supposed to be bold about the truth. Maybe I need to find out more about the truth. That'd be great. I'd love to try to help you with that. If you've got doubts or questions where you're like, this is really bugging me, I'd love to try to think about that with you. Persuaders can be bold. We don't need to be, don't you feel like, the, you know, if you're, you're supposed to walk on eggshells now and just hope to God you don't offend anyone, and so you're just kind of like this. We don't need to be that way. We can be humble and courageous because we're bold about the truth. That's the B, ABCs. C, build on common ground. Paul has done this several times in this chapter, but in verse 27 he says to King Agrippa, King Agrippa, do you believe the prophets? I know you believe. So evidently, Paul knows something about King Agrippa. What is King Agrippa interested in, at least a little bit? The Old Testament prophets. 
And so again, what's Paul trying to do? Do you remember? He's trying to persuade King Agrippa of the truth of who Jesus is. Right? That's what he's trying to do. And Agrippa's like, resurrection? You're crazy. I don't know about this. I said, well, do you, do you believe the prophets? Agrippa's like, yeah, you know, I've been reading these. Okay? What's Paul doing? He's building from common ground. You're interested in the Old Testament prophets? So am I. Did you know they point to this? They point to Jesus. And you might think, well, that's easy for somebody reading the Old Testament prophets, but you can't do that in, in this day and age. Oh, yes, you can. One thing that's actually wonderful about our day and age is the intensity of passion for social justice. Um, our, um, as, a, as a whole, it could be a fair stereotype that people care about justice. That should be a common ground for Christians and the culture, right? Should we care about justice for others, for the weak, for the oppressed? Of course we should. Common ground. That's common ground. So, say you have a friend who cares deeply about justice but is uninterested in God or Christianity. Do you have a common ground to work from? I see you care so much about social justice. That's awesome. You actually inspire me. I should care about it more. That'd be great to say that. But where do you get this idea that justice is so important? It's so ironic. Have you ever interacted with an agnostic or an atheist who's just passionate about justice? I have. And, and their love for justice is it's, uh, it's challenging. They, they seem more passionate about it than I am. And so, wow, I have something to learn. But I'm also a little confused. Because why would you believe in an authoritative right and wrong for all people when your view of the world is that it's all a cosmic accident? Do you see a disconnect there? In order for there to be justice that all people need to submit to, right? Because you can't have justice without... an an overarching standard. For another word, you, you can't say to the bad guys, hey, that's wrong. Well, how do you know? Because I feel like it's wrong. Well, I feel like it's right. Shove off, right? If, if feelings are the standard, we have no justice. There isn't one. So to, for, to actually have justice, you have to have an overarching authority for all peoples at all times. Well, where are you going to get that? It's going to have to be from a holy God. And you start looking at right and wrong, and you see we don't just need justice. We need justice wrapped up in grace and mercy. And where are you going to find that? The cross of Jesus is the ultimate for grace and mercy as well as justice. Common ground will point to Christ. And as persuaders, as we ask questions and are confident about the truth, we need to try to build from common ground. ABCs, here's the S, ABCs, S equals sincere in our persuasion. Verse 28, Agrippa says to Paul, hey, what are you doing to me? What are you up to? In a short time, would you persuade me to be a Christian? I see what you're doing, right? 
What does Paul say? Verse 29. In short, yes, that's exactly what I'm doing. Whether short or long, I would to God that not only you, but everybody who hears me today would be a Christian. Be just like me except for these chains. Do we need to be shy about the fact that we want to persuade people to trust Christ? I have a Muslim friend I see sometimes at the gym. We had a conversation once, and he actually said, you know, he was, he was arguing for the Quran, which is great. And he said, well, don't think I'm trying to convert you. And I said, I said, bro, if what you believe is true, that's exactly what you should be doing. You should be trying to convert me. I'm not offended by that at all. I'm darn well trying to convert you. Uh, I was on an airplane once, started talking to the person next to me. They were an atheist, and they said that they, didn't, they didn't like it that Christians evangelize. And I was like, oh, this, is, this one's a softball for me. I don't know. <laughs> so you think it's bad to persuade people of what you believe? I just don't think Christians should evangelize. So you're telling me that your view of the world is right, and I should adhere to it and not evangelize. Yeah, he kind of walked right into it. You're evangelizing me right now. You're trying to persuade me that your view of the world is the right one. What is that? It's evangelism. Look, every, it, we should care about truth. And if you think you found truth, you should try to, you should try to persuade everyone. And everyone should. And in the marketplace of ideas, there should be a give and take and a listening. And man, for Christian, what does our Savior say? I am the way, the what? The truth. I am the truth and the life. And so we, this is everything to us. He's the truth. And so we need to be sincere about persuasion. This is where we want to be careful. Persuasion is not the same thing as manipulation. Manipulation is ethically wrong. That's to like force somebody against their will to do something or say something. So for instance, Christians should never, ever use a gun or the sword or violence to make converts. Never. We can never do that. First of all, it's fake. If you hold a gun to somebody's head and say, I love Jesus, I love Jesus. Is that faith? Is that trust? Did it even do anything? It just showed you weren't a Christian maybe, but... That's not even in our playing field because what we're after is hearts and minds who trust in the person of Jesus. And that happens through loving persuasion. Loving persuasion. So it's not manipulation. It commends the evidence to each person's conscience. When you're a persuader, Paul's like, hey, I care about all of you. I want to be friends with all of you. I'll be a friend with you whether you're a Christian or not, but I sure would love it if you were a Christian because I think it's true sincere about our persuading. And this is love, right? If Christianity's not true, it's worthless. We should all leave right now. If Christianity is true, it's everything. Which means if it is true, it's the most loving thing in the world to persuade. Don't you think the events of Christmas deserve some persuading? He's come. Are you persuaded of that? He's come. 
We worship, we love him, and we want others to do it as well. Therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, what? We persuade. A couple ways to apply it. Number one, be persuaded in worship. If you're, if you're just thinking about what it means to be a Christian, you're like, maybe I didn't see it this way before. We're so glad you're here. If you have doubts, we're glad you're here. If you have questions, we're so glad you're here. If you wanna talk about any of this, I would love to engage in that with you. Questions, doubts, they're welcome here. But of course, our goal, is the end, is to be persuaded of who Jesus is and to worship. It's true, it's real. Second, out of our worship, obviously, persuade. And then persuaded, let's come now with sincerity to the Lord's Supper. I'm gonna pray, we're gonna take up our offering, then, um, then we'll have the Lord's Supper together And because we're persuaded that this baby is the Son of God. We eat the bread because we're persuaded he lived a perfect life for us. We drink the juice because we are persuaded that he died on the cross in our place. And we celebrate it together as his family because he rose from the dead. And that's the truth. Let's pray. Lord God, thank you for your efforts to persuade us of your grace, your love, your mercy, your majesty. Help us to hear and to believe. Lord, for wherever we are with you, Lord, I pray that today we'd be more encouraged about the reality of who you are and what you've done and that we would be persuaded and it would turn to worship. We'd repent, we'd turn to you, we'd follow you, we'd love you. And then, Lord, for those of us who are there, we pray that you would help us to engage in persuading others, that we, would ha- we have this truth um, in our hands, and that we would engage with others to, to win their hearts and their minds for your sake. We know that we cannot do this apart from your work, but Lord, use us. Help us, Lord, to ask questions, to be bold about the truth, to build on common ground, and to be sincere in our love that all uh, may see the glory, the beauty of Jesus, what he's done. We pray this in his name. Amen.